2: twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day no matter what kind of day you're having the perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax unwind with twizzlers to buy now visit hersheyland.com slash twizzlers
1: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help
0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Eight centuries or so ago, the readers of Europe liked nothing better than to sit down and absorb themselves in a romance tale, often telling stories of supernatural beasts death-defying quests and dashing knights who always got the girl. As Lydia zeldon Rust revealed in a feature in the June issue of BBC History magazine, romances were the literary sensation of the Middle Ages and did an enormous amount to shape the books and films we read and watch today. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, she explores how the genre took Europe by storm. So Lydia, you're a
3: feature in the June issue of BBC History magazine introduces us to the weird and wonderful world of the medieval romance, a literary genre that took much of Europe by storm across the Middle Ages. Before delving further into its popularity, I wonder if I could start by asking you to explain to our listeners exactly what a medieval romance was. What defined the romance from other literary genres?
4: Um, Thank you. That's that's a great question because it is... um a famously nebulous genre and I think also the word romance kind of calls up certain associations I think also maybe with modern romance novels. It was a very different beast um, from the modern romance novel for a start. Um, So the way the genre sort of emerges is mostly from a 12th century context and that's when uh, some of the earliest romances were written and they emerge from a courtly context as well. And originally, romance actually had nothing to do with love. Um, We—that's what we think of now. If you say something romantic, Um, or maybe it just means holding the door open for someone. I don't know, (laughs) kind of romantic (laughs) stuff or falling in love. But romance originally just meant book or uh, book in French more specifically so romance refers to the language um, it was just a, a way to sort of denote a book written in French rather than in Latin uh, that's the idea um, so originally it didn't really have anything to do with love but it um it means book in the sense that in lots of modern romance languages, when you say the word roman, it kind of still means novel. Um, so that's um, that's the background there. But gradually, uh, over time, um, love and kind of the love plot and boy meets girl and knight slays dragon to get the girl Um or dragon pretends she can't slay a dragon, or, or sorry, a girl pretends she can't slay a dragon so that the knights can slay it for her and they get together. That happens too. Uh, <laughs> that starts to become associated with this genre, um, but but not in its early days. In its early days, it was more uh, a designation of what, uh, what language one was using.
3: Sure if an author was to have sat down say 800 years ago with the view to writing a best-selling romance what would be the three or four narrative devices they'd have to have included to make this a real hit with their readership
4: there's a uh... Well, it's a good question because there is a certain formulaic quality to romances. It must be said, you do get the ones that are sort of wildly different, um, but as a general rule, it is a it is a genre that um, one can sort of use a certain formula for it. Um, and one of those formulas is that there's always a sort of quest in there. It, it's very much a kind of driving plot. Um, there's something, some problem that must be solved, or something that must be found out, or a creature that must be killed or captured. Um, so a quest is pretty essential, but it can take many forms. That quest um, it can be indeed try and find um, a dragon, or it could be some other creature, or it could be um, you know try and try and regain a kingdom that is supposed to be yours. But the identity quest is is a, a very popular theme as well. So it's it's a lot. A lot of stories are about somebody trying to find out who they are um, and who their parents were, um, and often they find that out through you know, all kinds of obstacles they have to overcome or through magical means, like some floating bronze head will tell them who their parents are, (laughs) something strange like that. But um, the way that has, uh, what people have said about it um, is that in a way it's a growing up kind of story that often at the start of these stories, uh, a knight, or indeed it could be a lady starring starring a romance, they're quite young, they don't know their place in the world and gradually... through finding out who they are and, and through all these adventures, they kind of find their place in society and, and, and their friends, the people they can rely on, who their family is. So there's a kind of growing up there as well. Um, other essential elements, well, the love blot, um, that becomes pretty essential. Yep. It isn't necessarily sure. there at the start, but um, it starts to get there in quite hilarious ways. So some of the earliest romances are translations of classical tales, um, but they become kind of medievalized and, and they get a kind of romance sauce poured over it. So the romance of Aeneas, you suddenly have Aeneas kind of being a middle-aged man who behaves like a lovesick teenager, basically. Like he misses <laughs> his lover so much that he's hugging the pillow and crying over it. It's, it seems a bit wrong sometimes, <laughs> sort of out of character. But yeah, love becomes a driving force. Um, I'd say you also need something strange an element of chaos something weird to start off the quest um so in the case of Sigarwin and the Green Knight it's a big green knight that enters court um on a horse which is a bit of a faux pas um what if it poops in the hole basically <laughs> you're supposed to let it outside uh, or leave it outside but um uh, yeah he comes in and says uh, could someone please lob off my head and then I'll uh, do the same to you in a year's time um, and then once that happens Gawain takes the challenge and he picks up the Green Knight picks up his head and uh, puts it back on again uh, or, or he had, carries it with him and then he leaves and uh, <laughs> Gawain kind of is left thinking why did I say yes to this? <laughs> it seems silly <laughs> um, and yeah the happy ending I would say is the other prerequisite that you have to have so romances are quite experimental often um, you're ve- very much in the realm of fiction. They can often do the what-if questions, like, oh, what if a person turns into a wolf once a month? Or, um, you know, what indeed if somebody asks you to chop off the head and it turns out that he can grow it back uh, or reattach it? Um, but by the end, it must be resolved. So whatever problems you have sure. in the middle, there are also stories of people, you know, who transform into animals or other creatures. That's all fine, but by the end, they must either become an animal or a human. You can't let that kind of problem, Problematic hybridity continue, um, and happy endings most often take the form of uh, a, a wedding, basically at the end um, where they get married. Everyone's so in love; they have lots of children, and and it stops there. <laughs> you don't really hear about the ever after. Um, but yeah, you must have a happy ending. Um, that is a prerequisite, so that everybody, you know, whatever scary bits were in the middle, everybody can go home feeling happy. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
3: As you just mentioned, a, a number of popular romances took their inspiration from classical tales such as the Trojan Wars or older legends like, say, the tales of King Arthur. Why were medieval authors so keen to, to mine these older sources?
4: It's a, it's an interesting thing that they do that. Um Partly because I think nowadays we think that medieval people largely forgot about the classical past. I think the old narrative used to be that um, people rediscovered these texts in the Renaissance and then before then people had sat around for a thousand years just kind of ignoring (laughs) the classical past. Um, And romances show us that this is not true. Um, There's very much a continuation. So yeah, the stories around Troy in particular, they were fascinated with. Um, This is partly um, a political move and a move of status so there is that kind of longing among kind of all the inheritors of kind of greece and of rome um, these cultures in europe that that they want to sort of associate with the great past and the kind of great classical heroes yeah. there's a stake in that um and this is also where the language issue of Romance meaning originally something written in French rather than Latin comes in because there is a move. French is a rather young language at that stage in terms of their literary history Um, So to borrow from these classical Latin texts is also to borrow some of that prestige. It's a kind of, it's a move of associating yourself with this kind of grand tradition. So it's kind of a status symbol then in some ways. Yes, it becomes very much a kind of status symbol um, and a way to kind of align yourself with that in the hopes that some of the prestige will rub off on you, as it were.
3: Now, um, medieval romances began life as as an, an elite pursuit, didn't they? Written by... Uh, quite well-educated authors for an upper-class audience. Now why was that and, and and how did the plot lines of early medieval romances reflect this
4: aristocratic influence? So the romances um, originate from a, a context that is the court uh, basically and these aristocratic readers and And so therefore, yes, you see it reflected in their plot lines as well, um, because the poets who are working at court um, we do have some examples of uh, aristocratic figures writing some of these themselves or writing love poetry, um, but most of the time they are patrons. And then we have a kind of someone working, a poet working at court, maybe a librarian or somebody who works with books and with letters, basically. Sometimes it's a chaplain. It could be a, a religious figure, um, but but an educated figure. Um, um, they will be commissioned to sort of write these stories or they'll write them to please um. Uh, please the people who take care of them, basically, financially. And so what you see in the stories is that it reflects that world. It reflects the world of the court. Um, And so our characters are knights and ladies. Um, We often start the story at a castle or some sort of big feast. Um, and, And then the rest of the story... People often move, this is that element of chaos, or so you'll go to a forest or some enchanted realm or the other world or whatever you have. And there's a lot of travel as well, um, mostly across the Mediterranean, uh, which again goes back to that kind of classical past and where that's sort of set. Sure. Um, but you always come back to court. Um, so you see that it's pretty much the concern of noble men and women. And, and the interesting thing is that um, in some of the earliest romances, Sometimes you will see a character that is of a different social layer. Um, So there is, um, let's say, a peasant might appear. It will be made very clear that this person is not a noble person. Um, There will be elaborate descriptions of um, how covered in mud they are, how awful their clothes are, or um, indeed how ugly they are in some ways. Um, It's it's not a nice read, (laughs) but you will get a sense that, you know, our heroes are they have noble blood. And um what I talked about earlier, the identity quest when somebody tries to find out who their parents are, it's never, you know, the fishmonger on the you know, it's never right. Um it is always some sort of king or count or duke or it's yeah, you it always turns out they were noble all along. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so there's a bit of snobbery going on in it definitely, here then, I guess.
4: Yes, yeah. definitely. You can tell that it's um very much kind of top down view um and yeah other layers of society don't always get off that well <laughs> now
3: so you say that uh this genre basically first appeared in courtly circles in France how long did it take for it to, to be disseminated across europe when when did it arrive for example in the english courts
4: so um This would be a sort of two-part answer because there is an interesting kind of background there where French and English culture are pretty much bound up for a long time as well. So for it to conquer Europe takes a bit longer, but it goes pretty quickly to English courts and to an English language context. Um, It's because at this time, England and France were obviously still kind of um, bound up. There were territories in France that... um, either belonged to England or was stolen. It depends on how you look at it. Um, but there is that interconnectedness. Um, and of course, the kings of England are also kings of French territories. Um, so so we see that some of these stories make it to England pretty quickly. Um, but they're not necessarily in English. Um, they're often still in French. So they will be in Anglo-Norman, which is kind of the local English, uh, French dialect. Um, so you see that it goes there pretty quickly. So the 12th century is when these um, these start to appear and it doesn't take long. Um, it also goes to Germany pretty quickly. Um, so a German language con- uh, context, um, mostly Arthurian stories, but also other stories go there. Um, then the low countries, there's a lot of contact. I mean, you can see how the, the kind of you know these borders are not—they shift anyway yeah, sure. during the medieval period. But it, it doesn't have to travel far. Um, but if for it to conquer the the rest of Europe, it uh, takes a bit longer. You start to see them in Spain as well. Again, it makes sense. Um, but they move to northern Europe and to Eastern Europe. Uh, that takes a bit longer. Um, so that's definitely a few centuries later. And when they do, they are often translations of French romances or of German originals which are often in turn translations of French romances so often French is seen as the kind of origin point um, from which these things spread but you do see as the medieval period goes on that it isn't just translation people start to write kind of original romances of their own in their own language Um, and the story that I told about um, Latin text lending some prestige to French you see that the same thing starts to happen so somebody um, let's say in Dutch might translate something and sort of proudly announce that it's from French and might use sort of Frenchy sounding words in order for right. it to sound more prestigious it, it you see that in turn people do that in other literary cultures as well.
3: And which European monarchs um sort of patronised medieval romance. I mean, is there, is there any sort of like well-known examples of uh, kings or queens are really, you know, throwing their weight behind the production of romances?
4: Yeah, so there are, there are lots of examples throughout history. In the early days, um, you see that it's a lot of women um, so Eleanor of Aquitaine is kind of famously, um, uh, and her daughter Marie de Champagne, um, they kind of famously patronise um, romances, and, and there's a there's a story around that, and we, it's not quite clear how how true this is, but that these stories were kind of being told at court, and that the idea is that you would have. Uh, stories of love, but sometimes also of adultery. And then people would, the idea is that it would be performed and then people would debate the morals of it. You know, is right. this—is it right that Guinevere and Lancelot are having an affair or um, <laughs> should she stick with Arthur or actually did she marry the wrong guy and would Lancelot have been the true love, as it were? Um, so that's what often gets imagined. Um, but, but lots of other figures throughout the period and sometimes romance is also used for other aims Um, so there are figures who kind of trace their um uh, genealogies and their their kind of ancestors back to figures of romances um one famous figure who i've worked on in the past is um melusine is a lady who transforms into a half-serpent once a week, um, like you as do. You yeah. <laughs> it's kind of weird because you're going, oh, my grandma was a serpent. Uh, okay. Um, um, and she becomes a kind of dragon towards the end of uh, the story, and as the story gets retold, so it's grandma was a dragon. But, um, but yeah, Jaquetta of Luxembourg and quite a lot of figures involved in the Wars of the Roses, Elizabeth Woodville, who's Jaquetta's um, daughter, um, they claim... Um, that they are descendants of this figure. And also uh, Jean de Berry, who's a kind of famous French, uh, uh, a patron associated with the Burgundian court, um, but also um, an avid book collector, a real book lover. Um, He has this story written. Um, So he kind of orders someone working for him at court to write down this story. And um, it starts with saying, you know, my patron, who is a descendant of this character, um, asked me to write um, this story. And the story, right, in okay. fact, ends with her um, kind of uh, coming back in dragon form to announce that um, he is entitled to her lands. Um, so it's an interesting way. It's it's not just entertaining story, but it becomes part of kind of history and myth making and, and this sense sure. of claiming um, claiming what is yours, even though... I do I mean, I don't know maybe it was a more interesting time when women could turn into dragons, but um, I feel it might not have been true <laughs> but <laughs> but that didn't matter very much no. that apparently it was interesting enough to kind of claim descent.
3: <laughs> You're right that things changed over the centuries, and that by so sort of towards the end of the medieval period, a genre that had been written for and by the elite was beginning to be consumed by a much larger audience. But how did that come about and and, and what impact did that have on plot lines in in romances?
4: So yes, what I've been talking about with this sort of aristocratic context um, is mostly the start of romances from the 12th century. Um, Now it always kind of keeps it, um, even towards the late medieval period and in the 16th century, um, the aristocracy still love these things. But you do see that the audience is becoming increasingly socially diverse. Um, This is partly to do with the nature of book production in the period. So in the 15th century is quite an important turning point um, where manuscripts are being produced on a larger scale. It becomes kind of more automated in a way that they divide up the tasks and they're able to produce things quicker. Um, more books etc and of course the invention of print um, comes in uh, and in England towards the end of the 15th century Um, and with that of course you're also able to produce books uh, much quicker and in much larger numbers Um, and hand in hand with that there is also an increase in literacy Um, so more people are being educated, more people have access to education, there's a kind of general shift in that um, there's a newer emerging kind of middle class. Uh, merchants yeah. are becoming more and more wealthy. Um, and they also start to become interested in these kinds of stories. Um, so we start to see that those from what we would now call a kind of, you know, um, social climbers, a kind of ambitious middle class, they also want to be associated with these stories. So in England, a lot of the manuscripts from the late medieval period um, are household manuscripts we tend to call them Um, and they are from these relatively well-to-do households Um, and they're often made to order so somebody will say it will go to a scribe somewhere and say I want these stories in here or or sometimes actually um, someone in the family copies them themselves Um, and um, the idea is that the whole household sort of has access to this book um, so they could read it but we also think it's much more likely that somebody in the family would read bits out and that it would be a kind of shared experience that you would sit around the manuscript, listen to the lovely story. Um, But yeah, it becomes more accessible. Um, uh, You start to see that, um, that, that, that that the audience is increasing, but I, but I will give a caveat and say that we're not at a time yet where everyone can read as it were. Um, So it is, you can't really say that everyone's reading them, but certainly it isn't just um, the upper classes anymore.
3: So it's, it's now a wider cross section of society than than was the case yes. before. Yeah. And so, do you get um, more characters within the plot lines now that aren't of aristocratic origin?
4: Yeah, you do see that this has a um, an impact on the stories themselves. It is still largely knights and ladies, but you will get the occasional character who's different. So quite famously, uh, Sir Amadas is one of these stories where one of the heroes is a merchant. Um, And actually, he's the hero, really. He's the one that we are supposed to. He's not our main character, but he's the person who teaches our main character a lesson. Um, So it's actually the knights in this story and the nobility who get the wrong ends of various sticks. um, But he's actually the one we're supposed to listen to. And by the end of the story, he also becomes a kind of saintly figure. Um, He dies and he gets reborn as a white knight um, who sort of teaches everyone a wise lesson. The lesson there is that... being being an aristocrat is often more about kind of superficial pursuits. Uh, and then if you want to look like uh, you are nobility, uh, you must be seen to spend money. So it it sort of questions this idea of um, what really is nobility? Is it just sort of pretending you're wealthy? This is a sort of lesson for our own time, <laughs> there. <laughs> what makes an influencer, should you? <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are those parallels too. But, sure. but he tries to say that, you know, it's superficial. There's something else there that is far more important. You must have a noble heart too.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: They say, oh, they're full of violence, these romances. Well, one mustn't watch them. There's too much sex in them. It's kind of all the things that we <laughs> that we might think of today.
5: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, history extra.
2: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored, Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit slash Twizzlers.
3: Now, one of the most interesting points I think you you make in the feature was the fact that uh, romances were especially popular among women. But, but, but why was that the case?
4: Yeah, so this is one of the things that um, that also happens towards the uh, end of the medieval period. I said already that um, patrons um, were already associated with romances. So yeah, Marie de Champagne, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, lots of noble women sort of find them interesting but towards the end of the medieval period and certainly um, when we move into the 16th century um, so these stories are still popular well into the early modern period um, women become recognised as the main audience of romances Um, and it's an it's an interesting shift um, in that people have also wondered if it's something to do with the fact that the romances themselves also tend to have female characters that are not as passive as in the earlier romances. So in earlier romances, there are... Mostly there to be looked at. They are there to be pretty, uh, to be won as a kind of uh, gift or trophy. Uh, (laughs) Not always. You will have the occasional woman who has an opinion, um, (laughs) uh, which is quite enjoyable to read. Um, But often they're there mostly to further the plot. Um, But you do see in late medieval romances, um, there are some romances that star women, but there are also some um, where women are quite clever often, and they're essential to the plot. The knight needs them. Um, So they're quite smart. They'll give important information. They're quite well-read. You do see um, that they become a bit more autonomous, really. Um, And it's been suggested that one of the reasons this appeals to women is that the historical counterparts might not have had that kind of degree of autonomy. So maybe there is a kind of wish fulfillment and escapism there. it must be said, though, that there are romances where women are, um, you know, quite powerful and they do a lot of things. But often it's when they have magical abilities. And right. that's an interesting one. Um, it is often also knowledge, but it, a, a knowledge of magic or of potions or uh, things like that, That that is their realm. Um so uh, people are divided over whether this is a positive thing because in a way it gives them some agency, it gives them some yep. control, but at the same time it's only went over this sort of magical... So there's a question of whether that, you know, is that sort of saying, oh, women can only have power when when it's clearly very fictional, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting one. Um, but you do see that um, there are more kick-ass ladies in uh, late medieval romances, yeah.
3: I guess uh, every cultural phenomenon provokes a backlash at some point or another. and The story is no different with uh, medieval romances. You write in the feature that this moment arrived in the 16th century when romances were accused of being the cause of many of society's ills. One commentator banned them as being whip-besotting trash, um, which is, yeah, quite scathing. <laughs> <And> um, <nice>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So...
4: Who were the genre's chief critics and, and, and what was the cause of their objections? So this starts to happen mostly in the 16th century. And it the main critics are humanists. Um, so these are kind of, you know, this is the new learning coming in, um, yeah. largely via the continent. Um, and these are well-educated men. Um, now, traditionally, this has been viewed as an attack on popular culture. So romances can be seen as kind of the earliest form of popular fiction. Um, and so some of the comments are quite funny when you think of uh, comments that you might get about popular culture today, which is that they say, oh, they're full of violence, these romances. Well, one mustn't watch them. There's too much sex in them. It's kind of all the things that we <laughs> that yeah. we might think of today. Um, for me, there's loads of echoes with like, you know, video games that kind of... Um, uh, the idea that if you played metal records backwards, they would tell you to go worship Satan. There is a certain element to that. Sure. Um, uh, so it's quite recognizable from that point of view. Um, so this is traditionally how it's been viewed. But if you read these commentators, they do say that these are yeah pernicious books and kind of filth and things that you shouldn't read. But very quickly, they will then go on to say, and women particularly should not read these. Right. Um, so a famous commentator is Juan Luis Viver, who is a Spanish humanist, um, but he's working uh, in the Low Countries. At the time, he's, he's writing a kind of condemnation of romances. Um, and he actually writes it. Um, it's a work that's been commissioned by Catherine of Aragon. Um, um, and she and he sort of says, you know, women shouldn't be reading these books, and he gets very concerned. So his his condemnation of the books are much shorter than when he goes into why women shouldn't read them. Um, it's very detailed, and in fact, he goes so far to say that, it, you know, if 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 a husband would let. His wife read a romance what are you thinking why would you do that she might as well you know there's so much love and sex in it you might as well have her read books on harlotry um so it very much becomes that and so one can't help but feel that there's also an echo there of these educated men trying to control women to some extent and trying to tell them what you should or should not read and this has a long tradition of course uh, particularly with the rise of the novel later on um there is absolutely that tradition of ooh, sh- women shouldn't be reading these things because they might get ideas who knows what it will do to their to their frail minds um, so you see the early traces of this um that um yes it will mess with women's heads and they really shouldn't they shouldn't read about how uh, you know, some knight cleaves, uh, another knight into a horse and all, there are some fabulous scenes. <laughs> um, but, you know, our counter answer might be, well, it's clearly fictional, that can't happen, right? So I'm sure that whoever's reading this realises that that's not true. It's, it's kind of about the escapism. Um, but yeah, there's a genuine concern that um, women might get, um, you know, they might get strange ideas. Or indeed, some of these stories... There's travel abroad, and there's the exotic, and there's the enticement of adventures abroad. And maybe a lady who reads these stories might not be so happy to stay at home and raise the kids if she learns about what happens in the rest of the world. Um, um, so, yeah, it's very much bound up with that. There were also debates at the time about to what extent women should be educated or young girls. Um because they would be educated at court, for instance, um, but in some sense there wasn't the expectation that they would get then in, go into something, some sort of, you know, job or um, whatever. Whereas for the men, if they're kind of leading, and there's an expectation that they have to have a certain amount of knowledge and read certain books. Um, so there is a discussion. Um, and I will say that most of the known owners of romances, so uh, that's a figure like Isabella of Castile or... Um uh, Anne of Beaujeu, uh sorry, <clears throat> Anne of Beaujeu, who um uh, who's a, a, a French a noble noblewoman. There's Margaret of Austria, kind of these figures, um it, as indeed Jacquetta of Luxembourg, they they are also the women who the women who own romances and who very much believe in education. And so Isabel of Castile, for instance, owns several romances, and we associate her basically with piety. She's one of the Catholic kings. Um, um, she was quite a formidable ruler in her own right. Um, but she was also very much a champion of education and she had her daughters educated alongside her sons. Um, and she also appointed a female scholar uh, at her court um, uh, who know? Who was quite well known for uh, La Latina was her nickname um, because she, her Latin was so good. Um, so we do see that there's this sort of trend towards women um, finding it important uh, that that finding education important and also finding it important that the next generation is educated too.
3: I was also going to ask you did, did these criticisms in any way add to the allure of romances? did they actually drive potential readers into the arms of of, of romances?
4: yeah, so the sense is that it it must have done um there is no evidence really that it ever hurt their sales um. In fact, these things were still being printed. They were still being translated. Um, And especially if you take a kind of broader European view, you start to see that they conquer new markets as well. So when it moves into Eastern Europe, um, whilst people in the West are kind of complaining about, oh, you shouldn't read these things. It will be dangerous for you in Eastern Europe. They're going, oh, we love these things. I can't wait till (laughs) the next one comes out. So um, there's definitely a kind of broader view there. Um, So... It, there isn't necessarily any evidence that it hurt. Now, it might be the case where, um, you know, like in your modern, this is a new thing, of course, that hasn't emerged in the age of kind of, you know, Zoom calls and video conferencing, is that you're quite conscious of what's in your bookcase, uh, <laughs> what you might show. <laughs> so it, it, it may be that, you know, this is not the book you put on display anymore. Um, but there are lots of people who aren't ashamed of loving romances. So um, St. Teresa a Spanish nun, she kind of writes in her biography um, that she loved reading romances as a child and so did her mother and she very much says it offered us an escape. They had a quite, she had a difficult childhood. Her mother had a a not very nice husband um, and this was just a moment in the day where they could escape from their cares. Um, So you do see people admitting it. I will say that it becomes associated also a little bit with the follies of youth. Um, So it does become more like, you know, when you're young, you can read romances. That's totally acceptable. Um, But it doesn't seem to have hurt um, their production. Eventually, they do become a bit less popular, but that seems to be more of a fashion type thing. Um, A lot of these romances um, get turned into plays or ballads. Um, Shakespeare plunders them, like there's loads of um, little motifs and characters that come from romances. Uh, most famously, the fairy king Oberon uh, is from the romance Juan de Bordeaux, um, and he kind of takes that. Um, so they morph into different forms, and with that, uh, there does seem to be, they they change a little bit. Um, but yeah, the... Um, it never seemed to hurt their production. I will say also, um, that some of the romances end up on censor lists. Um, so lists right. of prohibited books. Now the sense there is that it often isn't anything to do with the content, but with changing religious sh- uh, shifts. So yeah. um, they're too Catholic, basically. They're not Protestant enough because they are right. medieval. They often are quite yeah. Catholic. Our hero will go and, you know, go to mass before he goes off on adventure. Um, so one of the examples I use in the article is Robert the Devil, which was very, very popular. There's there's even a later opera, um, Robert le Diable, uh, of the same name, Um and this is one that really should offend everyone because he does everything. I mean, it's called the devil. He is the son of the devil and he does everything that God has forbidden <laughs> and mm-hmm. then some. Yeah. But it never seems to have... It, it ended up on some list and the idea was that it shouldn't be ta- taught to children. Um, so that is something. But it definitely... You know, it was definitely being read. We know that some of the manuscripts that are there, even if new ones weren't being produced, people were still reading the old ones, um, the older books. And he pops up in lots of other literatures. There's lots of references to him, which tells us that, yeah, these were quite well-known, these stories. So he, yeah, he sets nuns on fire and he kills lots of people when he's still young and he, he does everything that is wrong. Um, people loved it. <laughs> people loved the story. Um, didn't hurt at all. <laughs> now, fast forwarding a
3: few centuries, I mean, what would you say is the influence of the medieval romance on 21st century film and literature? I mean, you know, when I open a book or turn, turn on my television today, I mean, is there, can you still feel the impact of this genre on what we're consuming, yeah, like I say, in the 21st century.
4: Oh, definitely. Um, I think that idea of us associating the word romance with love and a kind of wooing someone absolutely comes from this genre. Um, it, it, It was approved upon by later romances, 18th century, 19th century, and romance novels kind of still use that as a key plot point. But it's whenever you watch a film and there's someone, you know, looking across a crowded room and their eyes lock, or whenever you... Even if there's a big battle scene and you can see two characters in it and you're like, okay, they're going to end up by the end of this. <laughs> as, you know, that kind of drive where you know that our two heroes are going to end up uh, together um, and, and and that sense that there is one person for you who's the right person, who's the soulmate. In a lot of romances, um, when somebody falls in love, it's not just you know you're attracted to them but they bring everything you could ever want um the ladies are always beautiful um they're intelligent um and also they often bring with them lots of wealth lots of land uh bonus if she's like a princess and her father has just died and there's no other inheritors there's no competition um this is kind of the dream of the medieval romance um and that's quite, you know, that's quite literally wealth and social status that these women bring with them. But I think we still see that in a lot of stories where if you fall in love, you know, there's the one, there's your soulmate, this one person who will complete you, um, which is completely unrealistic, I think, but we still have that kind of that kind of sense that someone will make you whole. Um and that you are meant to be together. Um, Now, I don't know if this is a good thing. I think it has done a lot of damage too, but that is absolutely a medieval inheritance um, from these stories. But another thing that um, is very medieval, so um, we might think of uh, sort of sequels and prequels, serialization, as a very modern phenomenon. Maybe it's a Star Wars thing or maybe it's a Marvel thing, um, but that absolutely arises with romances. So people love these things so much. that particularly with Arthurian tales and with uh, chivalric romances. So Amadis is a kind of famous uh, Spanish example of that. It has loads of uh, there's loads of volumes, um, but also lots of spin-offs. So Amadis's son will have his own story. There'll be a backstory to somebody else. Um, th- there'll be some yeah some sequel to this and a prequel to. It totally is. Um, this genre that kind of sets that off and the people just want more and they want to know about this other character who was just there in the background and now they want to know what their adventure is um so that too i think and obviously that continues through the centuries that with dickens writing there's also that serialization but it kind of has its roots in the romance genre where it's just people just wanted more of what they liked
3: so we we can blame the spin-off on medieval romances yeah totally
4: yeah because there's there's lots of sort of This is why at the start Lancelot is just there to be kind of Guinevere's love interest but then people were like, who's this Lancelot? We must find out about <laughs> Lancelot. And then somebody writes a backstory to Lancelot that sure. he was found by a fairy who took him to a lake and kind of raised him. And then he has to find out who his parents are. And then somebody wanted, uh, at some point he uh, impregnates a lady and somebody goes, well, what about what about his son then? What about Galahad? And then we get a story about Galahad. So it kind of, this is how it grows yeah. and grows. Sure. Um, yeah. Finally, Lydia, if, if, if you could recommend Uh,
3: say, three or four medieval romances to our listeners, which ones would
4: you choose and why? Ooh, this is very difficult, isn't it? Um, Only three. Um, There are so, so many. Um, I would say if we wanted to have a good sense of the variety of what romances offer, it would make sense to have one from, say, the early days, slightly later one, and maybe a late medieval one. So I would say for the early days... Uh, Christian de Troyes' Lancelot, I would pick. Um, it's, uh, it's Lancelot or the Knight of the Cart um, is the story of this romance, or is the title of this romance. Um, it is the first story to introduce Lancelot into the Arthurian canon. So this is Christian's invention before this in the kind of historical Um, uh, records of Arthur, although you can wonder how historical they are because there's dragons in it for a start. Um, But um, there is no Lancelot. Chrétien introduces him. Um, It's a wonderful story because it will give you a sense of what romance does in the early uh, early days. And it is also a very good example of what this genre can do. So uh, Chrétien de Troyes has been hugely influential for the genre. So you can sort of see some of the early tropes in this and how he sort of um, gives birth almost to this <laughs> to this later genre. It's also from, from the point of view, because if you've read other medieval texts, like Beowulf could be something that uh, maybe people have read, there isn't a lot of interiority. Characters just do things. There are actions Action, 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 plot, 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 but not a lot else. Um, This story often pauses to give us the thoughts of the characters. Um, So you will see the inner workings of Lancelot. You will see Guinevere pining for her lover. Um, although I'll say Lancelot does as much pining as Guinevere does. Um, At some point he wants to throw himself off a tower um, because he misses her so much. Um, He ends up not doing it, luckily, but um, (laughs) it can be a little over the top, but it's an interesting sort of experiment where somebody's, um, it's part of a sort of larger development of people trying to see what it might be like to to talk about what the character is feeling and thinking. Uh, The other one I would recommend is Melisine. Um, This is, Partly because I have worked on her a lot and I really enjoy this story, but it is fabulously mad. Um, you'll love it. It's uh, So it is the lady who becomes a half serpent um, every Saturday, in fact, that's when she becomes a half serpent. Um, it is a big beast. It's a very big story, um, but it is available in modern English translation. So one could get one's hands on it. It is so strange. I can't even begin to explain <laughs> Like any weird stuff will be in there. Um, It is a story that has something for everyone, I think. Um, So it's her adventure, but also her sons go out on adventure. Um, Her sons, are one of them has a, they sort of inherit some of her monstrosity. One of them has a big tooth coming up from his bottom lip. Another one has a lion's paw stuck to his cheek. Um, They all have kind of very fabulous kind of monstery things that doesn't stop them being the most amazing knights ever. Everybody loves them and every girl throws herself at them Um, (laughs) and every, every king kind of goes, Hmm, he's my daughter. Uh, (laughs) um, But, but of course uh, the daughter always falls in love with him. Um, So um, there's no problem on that front. They always look at them and go, "Ah, I love you straight away because that is the code of these stories. You must fall in love on first sight. Um, and then for the third one, I think I want to do one that's slightly unknown, um, but um, it's The Aventures of Arthur. So that's the Middle English text, basically means yep. The Adventures of Arthur. Um, and it is, a, it is a lesser known one, but I love it because it opens with, A rotting corpse, basically. It is a bit left field, but um, the Gwenvir and Gawain are out uh, on an outing and suddenly everything goes dark and this sort of rotting corpse approaches them, this zombie, and it has kind of little... Burning embers for eyes, and it is visibly decomposing, and it starts right. to speak to Guinevere, and goes, "Hi, Guinevere, I'm your mum," and then she sort of imparts a moral lesson. But but it's a great sort of example of the weird things that romance writers are into. Um, Romance genres often ask the "what if" questions, Something like, "What if you know some some rotting corpse came to talk to you and tell you what to do in life?" Um, the you know anything goes in these stories often. So I would say it's a it's quite a. It sounds horrible, but it's a sort of really interesting read. Um, the descriptions are wonderful. There's like toads coming out of um, parts of bodies that you do not want toads coming out of. Um, so it's, it's a fun read from that point of view. Uh, and Guinevere basically walks away going, OK, that was weird. And then sort of everything goes back to normal. Um, it's a very strange one, but, it, but an enjoyable read for that reason. Yeah.
0: That was Lydia's Rust. You can read her feature on medieval romances in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now and also includes features on Anglo-Saxon Christianity, the AIDS crisis, the life of Prince Philip and Marcus Aurelius. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us next on Friday when I'll be speaking to Judith Macle about women reporters in World War II.